0: How many remembers the sermon series that I started last week? And uh, so we're going to finish it, and I'm just going to finish the sermon series today, and so we can move on to something else because I am not, I'm not very good at preaching hard sermons like this. All right, so, uh, so I'm going to just preach it today, and I can move on to something else. All right, and so First Corinthians chapter six, First Corinthians chapter six beginning with verse number 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or did you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is God's. And so open your heart today and let's just uh, try to give our undivided attention. I know that sometimes people are up and down. If you've got to go to the bathroom, we understand if it's an emergency. But let's just give our undivided attention to the Word of God so that it can really change your life, all right? So um, today I'm going to finish the sermon series on elephants in the room, pornography, premarital sex, and co- cohabitation. So that's, these are the issues that we, we have been dealing with. Pornography, Premarital Sex, and Cohabitation. And this is uh, uh, part three of my sermon series, Elephants in the Room. Now, if somebody says to you, or if I ask you the question, what does it mean that there are elephants in the room? And that's an old cliche that we've heard before, but it means something. And if I say that there's elephants in the room, it means that there's an obvious problem or a difficult situation that all of us are aware of, but we don't want to deal with. It's an obvious problem or a difficult situation that's in the room, but we don't want to deal with it. We all know it's there. It's a difficult situation, but we don't want to talk about it or deal with it. How many would agree with Pastor Josh that there are obvious issues in the church that sometimes we sweep under the carpet and we don't want to deal with? Raise your hands. Amen? We all know that there are issues that we don't want to deal with in the church, and it's just easy to sweep it under the carpet and act like it's, it's, we don't need to deal with it. Uh, and so in this sermon series, the first sermon that I dealt with was a sermon on mental illness. Uh, mental health and illness, that's the first sermon I dealt with, and I said that one out of five adults in America suffer with some, form of, some sort of mental illness. And obviously, this is an issue that we need to continue to be aware of and offer solutions and offer help to those people who are dealing with mental uh, illness. It is an issue that we need to be aware of, and it's an issue that we do need to face. And it's an issue that we need to offer uh, help to those who are struggling uh, mentally. Uh, Last week, we started the sermon series on pornography, uh, and we dealt with uh, the issue of pornography, a very hard subject. And I said in statistics, I said 50% of Christian men are addicted to porn, while 20% of women are also addicted to porn. And statistically, women who are addicted to porn is actually on the increase just as much as men. And so we dealt with that subject. And so today I'm going to deal with premarital sex and cohabitation God's view about premarital sex and cohabitation, living together. Uh, And not being married. And so before I do this, and I did this last week, but it's important because I haven't seen you in seven days. So it's important that you understand my heart. And I want to clarify a few things. And I want to express my heart to you. And it's very, very important, very important that your heart is in tune to my heart. Because if your heart is not in tune to my heart, it's very easy for you to misread something and take something wrong. And listen, communication is not what's being said it's what's being understood. So it's important that you understand my heart this morning because if you don't understand my heart, it's very easy for you to leave church offended and leave church upset and misread what I'm trying to tell you. So it's, I'm going to lay it down, we'll lay it in a spirit of love, and I want to make sure I clarify a few things. Number one, I want to make sure that although I'm dealing with pornography and premarital sex and cohabitation, the object and the objective of my sermon is not to call people out for their sins. I'm not trying to embarrass you, and I'm not even trying to condemn you, even if you're living in sin. Number two, I'm not even trying to pinpoint a particular person. I am not using the pulpit to try to expose people's sins. I have never in all the years of my ministry tried to use the pulpit to try to correct somebody's personal sin. People tell me all kinds of stuff and most of the stuff I can't remember. And so I'm not going to get up here and air out your dirty laundry because I think you're not teachable. So I'm going to get up behind the pulpit and tell you... Uh, publicly. I, I just don't work that way. I'm a man enough to come to you personally and tell you to your face, I'm not going to use the pulpit as, as, as a place to beat you and condemn you. Can I hear an amen? I'm not going to do that. And I want to make sure you understand something. If you've told me something, you're safe with me. You're safe with me. Uh, number three, I am not calling anybody out on Facebook. So if somebody puts something on Facebook that they're living with someone or they had a child out of wedlock, I, I, don't, I, I am not using Facebook at all to preach this sermon. Facebook has nothing to do with this. Again, I'm not spying on your family. I'm not spying on your children. I'm not trying to rack up people's sins so I can come up with a sermon to preach. That's not my heart. All right? If, and I want to make sure you understand something, if your child or you have children living in sin, Or maybe they're partaking in premarital sex or cohabitation or maybe they're living in sin. I am not here to try to make you feel bad over your children's sins. I'm not here to try to put them down. What I am saying is that you're a parent and you are to love them into the kingdom of God. Can I hear an amen? You are to love them into the kingdom of God. You may, you, your children will do things that you will disagree with. But it doesn't matter what they do and who they live with or what they say. They are still your child and you are to love them and you put your arms around them and you love them unto the kingdom of God. Is there any parents in the building that can just wave your hand and say, Pastor, preach on a little bit? You've got to love them. And if, and if you're going to point your finger at them and and condemn them and tell them how awful they are and bring up their sins, you're never going to get them into the kingdom of God. You know what the Holy Spirit is saying today? Love them until they ask why. Love them into the kingdom of God. Alright? But you may be faced with a situation that you may have to counsel someone that's dealing with pornography or premarital sex or some of these issues. You, you need to know how to deal with these issues as a Christian. I'm here as a pastor. And as a pastor, I care for your soul. I care for your family. And I want to have a voice of a prophet and yet a heart of a shepherd. I want to have a voice of a prophet and a heart of a shepherd. I am not here to preach my opinions. I'm not here to preach my thoughts I am going to the Bible since I'm a preacher, and I want to tell you what the Bible says about these issues. And if you disagree with me about these issues, then I'm asking you to respectfully pray about it and search the Bible, search the Scriptures, and let the Holy Spirit speak to you if you feel that I'm wrong about these issues. Then you can go to the Bible yourself, because it's, it's, everybody can get a Bible. You can study it yourself. You can ask the Holy Spirit if I'm wrong. Because the Holy Spirit is the teacher and He will guide you into all truth. And lastly, if you're here today and you're dealing with pornography, if you're living in sin and you're confused about these issues, or maybe you're confused about your sexual identity, maybe you're facing sexual issues that you've never faced before, well, let me just stop and say all of us have been born into sin, all of us struggle with sin, It may not be a sexual issue. It may be another issue. But we all deal with sin. We all struggle with sin. And no matter what you're struggling with, you're not alone. You're not alone. And I want to remind you that there's hope this morning. There's grace this morning for your struggle. Instead of giving up in your struggle, I prophesy to you, you need to struggle towards victory. You need to struggle towards the presence of God. You need to struggle towards victory. Some people, when they find themselves in sin, when they find themselves in the hole of sin, and they find themselves in... Or whatever the sin may be, they just give up and say, you know what, the issue is too hard for me to bear. I'm just going to give up and give into it. But you see, that's a lie from the devil. There's a difference between struggling with sin and giving in to sin. And I promise you, church, the enemy wants to convince you that since sin is so difficult, you just need to give up and fall into the sin and go back to sin. But I prophesy to you today the devil is a liar. You were created to war, you were created to be strong. You were created to struggle. You were created to walk forward. You wasn't created to give up. He didn't teach you how to swim to let you drown. He didn't get to call you this far so that you will retreat and go back. He has called you to be strong like a soldier. So no matter what the struggle is, no matter if it's pornography or whatever the struggle is, I promise you if you put your faith in Christ and you put your perseverance in the Word of God, and you struggle towards victory, you will never lose. I don't care if you've got to come to this front and pray every Sunday, and let me take oil and put it all over your head. If, if I've got to take this oil and put it all over your head every Sunday and pray for you, then let it be. Come to the front. Let's pray together. Let's struggle together. Let's believe together. Let's worship together. Let's not give up in the midst of the struggle. Woo! We have a lot of people that just want to give up because it gets difficult. Well, I'm struggling with this issue, so I just want to give up. I mean, I've struggled with porn for 20 years. I'm just going to give up. The devil is a liar. I said the devil is a liar. If you're struggling, it's a sign that you haven't been defeated. Woo! Woo! <laughs> Somebody better just help this Pentecostal preacher preach in this building. I am mad at the devil for lying to you. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. If the truth can make you free, then it must be a lie that binds you up. And that's exactly what the devil wants to do to you. He wants to lie to you. He wants to convince you that there's no hope and there's no grace and there's no forgiveness. But the devil is a liar today. I prophesy in the name of Jesus that you are called for victory. Hallelujah. Can somebody just stand to their feet right now and proclaim in the face of the enemy, I'm not giving up. I'm not retreating. I'm not going backwards. I'm not letting my worship go. I'm not slacking in my church attendance. I am going forward in victory. And you know what happens? You know what happens? People who struggle with issues... Your consecration to God has to be as deep as your sin. So if you're struggling with these issues, come to church once in a while and reading the Bible once in a while is not good. Because your consecration to God has to be equal or deeper than the level of sin that you find yourself in. I'm going to say that again. Your consecration to God has to be equal or greater of the level of struggle of sin that you find yourself in. So don't tell me you want to get free if all you show up is once a month to church and read your Bible occasionally and pray occasionally. You don't want free. And the devil wants to convince you that, that you're delivered, but you're not delivered because you haven't looked at it. It's just laying dormant in your life. There's a difference between dormant and deliverance. And there are some issues in our life that lays dormant when we're not really delivered. It's just laying dormant in our life. And your consecration to God has to be as great or greater than the struggle of sin that you find yourself in. Now, I want to admit, I don't like preaching on subjects like this. Nobody does. I mean, why would I want to preach on this? It's an elephant in the room. But you know what? I preach on this because I could preach on something to make you shout, but I preach on hard subjects because hard subjects challenges us to grow. And I want you to grow. I want you to be healthy. I want you to be whole. I just don't want you to shout on Sunday morning. I want your life to be whole. You know, the Bible says in Acts 20, verse 27, the Bible says, Paul even said this, he says, I have not Shun to declare to you the whole counts of God. In other words, Paul said, there's much more in the Bible than this or that. The Bible is filled with information. He says, I have been a preacher to make sure I preach on a plethora of things. And I want to be a preacher who preaches on a plethora of things and not just one issue all the time or, or this issue or just the same stuff. There's so much to preach about. You see, and if I don't deal with hard issues, you will never grow as a person. You see, one of the things I just said a few moments ago, and I think I need to say it again, is this. Is that all of us are broken. You're composed of body, soul, and spirit. We're all broken. When you're born into the world, you are born a broken, flawed, sinful person. And you are composed of body, soul, and spirit. So that means your physical body, is flawed. That's why we get sick. Emotionally, your soulish man is flawed. That's why we have mental health issues. We're flawed. We don't think right. We don't respond right. Our emotions are crazy at times. Can I hear an amen? And then spiritually, we're flawed. We're flawed. We're broken. We're sinful. And if that is true, according to Romans 5 that when you're born into the world, you're born a sinner, you're born flawed, you're born broken, Then that means your body, soul, and spirit is flawed as well. That means physically you are flawed. You're going to get sick. And people say, well, I wonder why sickness happens. I just told you. We're born into sin. We're born broken. We're born flawed. And everything that goes wrong is a result of sin. So you're going to get sick because it's the sin nature. You're emotionally... You, It's going to affect us emotionally because we're affected by the sin nature. Spiritually, we're affected. We're born dead. And sexually, we are affected. Somebody says, well, you're not born that way. Yes. If somebody says they're born that way, they are born that way. They're born into sin. They're born with the capability of doing anything that's sinful because we're born into sin. And the reason that we make those statements is because we don't have a biblical worldview. We're full of humanism. We we, we, we interpret the things of life by humanism. You've got to interpret the events of life and what happens in life according to the lens of Scripture. We've got to look at the Bible through the lens of Scripture and interpret our life according to the Bible. And if somebody says, I'm born this way, I'm confused, it is a disorder. And the reason it's a disorder is because we are born into sin, we're born broken, we're born flawed, and every one of you has the ability to commit any sin that's ever been recorded in history. Some person may have more of a tendency towards a direction than others. You may have a tendency towards alcohol and struggle with it. Some people may have a tendency to overeat or a tendency with their mouth. They may have a disorder sexually, but we're flawed. We're broken. So when we become born again, we're offered a new life. A new way of starting our life. Amen. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, he said you've got to purge yourself from the filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. In other words, you're flawed spiritually. You're flawed in the flesh. You are filthy. You are born Filthy. You are born with disorders. You are born not thinking right. You are born. Some people are naturally good. But even when we're naturally good, we're still flawed. We're still sinful. Somebody said, well, why does bad things happen to, to good people? Well, according to Scripture, there is nobody that's good. You see how humanistic we are in our approach? There is nobody that's good, the Bible says. We're all sinful world. And the question is, can Christians struggle with sexual sin? And I'm going to say to you a big yes. They can struggle with sexual sin. Now, this scripture is not behind me. If they can find it, that's fine. If not, it's no big deal. Uh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse number 2, the Bible says, Paul wrote this book, and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he says to the church of God, which, are, which is at Corinth, who is sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints in every place, who call upon the name of the Lord. So guess what? He's writing to a bunch of Christians who love God, and he called them saved. He called them sanctified. But isn't it interesting, in the same book, the same church, he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 1. 1 Corinthians 3, verse number 1. Guess, guess this is what he says here. 1 Corinthians 3, verse number 1. He says, And our brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal as babes in Christ. I fed you with the milk and not with solid food until now. You were not able to receive it. For verse number 3, For you are still carnal... And where the, and there is envy and strife and divisions among you, you are carnal, you're behaving like carnal, mere men. So what's happening here, church? What's happening here in verse number two and three, he's telling us that even though you may be a Christian, even though you may be born again, even though you may love Jesus, according to verse number three, he says, "Some of you are fleshly. Some of you are carnal. Some of you are behaving very carnal. You're behaving very fleshly. And he says, verse number 2, he says, I can't even give you solid food. i got to treat you like a baby. So the question is, I want you to help Pastor Josh out. Can Christians struggle with sexual sin? Say yes or no. Can Christians struggle with sin, Period. According to the Bible, is Paul addressing a bunch of Christians who had division, envy, and strife in their church? Yes. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, you can come to church week after week and never grow in God. You can hear sermons and never grow in God. Did you hear me? Now, in the same book, in the same book, First Corinthians chapter six and verse number verse number uh, thirteen. Verse number 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 13, I want you to see this. He says this, he says, some of you are struggling with sexual sin, obviously. If you look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 13, verse number 13, I'll wait for a moment so you can see it. He says, some of you are struggling with sexual sin. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, but God will destroy both of them. Now the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now why is he saying that? Because there are Christians who are committing sexual sin. There are Christians who are indulging themselves in behavior that is not acceptable to God. And Paul is writing them and telling them, listen, you need to wake up. Your body was not given for sexual immorality, but your body was given for the Lord. So these Christians, and I could read other scriptures that will convince you that these Christians were dealing with sexual sin, and I think I read a lot of those scriptures to you last week, did I not? I read a lot of those scriptures last week about how they were needed to flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 18. He's telling the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. For every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he that commits sexual sin is against his own body. Who is he talking to church? He's talking to Christians. Christians were sex they were indulging themselves in sexual sin. And he is saying, listen, stop this. Wake up. Your body was not created for sexual sin. Listen. If you indulge in sexual sin habitually, you will backslide. You will fall from grace. It's important that no matter what sin that we struggle with, we struggle towards victory and have a heart of repentance. and Go towards God. You may say, well, pastor, how in the world can God use me? I'm so flawed with issues. I have so many issues. Well, the good news is, church, He does use flawed people. The good news is, God can still use you even if you did mess up in these areas. If you feel like you're unworthy and you're not worthy enough, remember that Jesus chose a bunch of flawed people to share hope to a flawed world. It is because of your mistakes that God uses you, not in spite of them. I want to say that again. It is because of your mistakes that God uses you and not in spite of them. He uses you because of your mistakes. He chooses flawed people because that is what we can identify with. He chooses flawed people because it makes us see our need to have a Savior. He chooses flawed people because we will have no ability to boast in ourselves. And when God uses us, we'll know without question that it wasn't really us because we were really flawed and so therefore God will get the glory. The reason that God uses flawed people, the reason that God uses messed up people, the reason that God uses sinful people is because in the end, God wants to get the glory. And if you had all the ability and had all the smarts and had all the reasons Resources, then you could take the credit and you would get the glory but God will pick somebody that's messed up and flawed and sinful and he will pour his anointing in them and raise them up and they will be a person that will make sure that he gets the glory can somebody say amen that's why God uses flawed people Noah was a drunk man and God used him Abraham was too old and God used him. Isaac was a daydreamer and God used him. Jacob was a liar and God used him. Leah was ugly and God used her. Joseph was abused and God used him. Moses had a stuttering problem and God used him. Gideon was afraid and God used him. Samson was a womanizer and had long hair. God forbid that. And God used him. Rahab was a prostitute, and God used her. Jeremiah and Timothy was too young, and God used them. David was suicidal, and God used him. Isaiah preached naked, and God used him. Jonah ran from God, and God used him. Naomi was a widow, and God used her. Job went bankrupt, and God used him. John the Baptist ate bugs, and God used him. Peter denied Christ, and God used him. The disciples fell asleep while they were praying, and God used him Martha worried about everything and God used her the Samaritan woman was divorced more than once and God used her Zacchaeus was too small and God used him Paul was too religious and single and God used him Lazarus was too dead and God used him because we serve a God who uses messed up people can somebody give God praise this morning He uses messed up people. I'm thankful. I said I'm thankful for the grace of God. I said I'm thankful for the grace of God. I'm thankful when I was down and out, His grace brought me up. I'm thankful that when I was down at the bottom of the barrel, His grace brought me up. Hallelujah. And some of you need to be reminded of how sinful you really are. Some of you need to be reminded that you don't really got what it takes to do it. That if it wasn't for His grace and His mercy, you wouldn't be here. God uses messed up people. Number one, in order for me to tell you what, why the Scriptures is against premarital sex and cohabitation, I think it's important to tell you what the Christian view of marriage is. Now again, I'm not married, but that doesn't disqualify me to tell you what the Bible said. Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. Some of the great early church fathers never married. That whole lot of stuff to say what the Bible says. There's a difference between experience and Scripture. I'm telling what the Scripture says. The Christian view of marriage. In the Western mindset, we have a Western mindset, and the Western mindset is Life is about to please me. Isn't that what the Western mindset is? You grow up in America thinking about personal fulfillment. What I can get out of life. The American dream. But you see, that's American theology, not biblical theology. Biblical theology is not about personal fulfillment. Biblical theology tells us that we are to lay down our lives as servants. Not to have personal fulfillment. Now, what is the definition of marriage? What makes a marriage? Is it a pastor? Is it a church? The Catholic Church states in the catechism that a Catholic cannot be married unless the Catholic Church marries them. If a Catholic marries a Protestant, they've got to be married at the middle of the aisle and cannot come to the altar. The Catholic Church has the stance that it is the church that ordains marriage, and without the church, you cannot be married whether you're married at the Justice of Peace or whatever, the church ordains marriage. I disagree with that theology. I don't agree with the Catholic theology, and lots of people think that way. That's why marriage is considered a sacrament in the Catholic church. It's one of the sacraments. We don't view marriage as a sacrament. They do. I believe the Protestant view of marriage is probably the right view. The reason why, let me explain When marriage was given, it wasn't given to Christians. When marriage was given, it was given in the book of Genesis to humans. It wasn't given to Christians. It wasn't given to the church. It was given to humans. And the very first marriage that we see is Adam and Eve. One man and one woman coming together as one. That is the first definition or first, the law of first mention of marriage. So in other words, marriage was given to humans humankind. It was not given to Christians, it was given to humans. So it's not necessarily a church or a priest or the justice of peace that makes a marriage. It is this. A marriage is a permanent, exclusive, legal, public commitment to share your life with one another. In other words, it's a covenant. It is a permanent, exclusive, legal, public commitment to share your life with one another. That's why when you get married, you have to have witnesses, because it's public. It's a public ritual, just like baptism is public. You can't baptize yourself. It has to be public. That's why we do it publicly. M- marriage is a public ritual, but it's a legal commitment to share your life with somebody else. It's a permanent, exclusive, legal, public commitment to share your life with one another. And if two people make a public And it's legal by the state and it's exclusive and it's permanent and it's a promise. A marriage can take place whether it's a pastor, a priest, a justice of peace or a laity. Somebody has to witness the promise of two people, one man and one woman, making a permanent, exclusive commitment to one another. The problem problem is, is this. We have two views of marriage. The first view is called the consumer relationship. A consumer relationship is this. A consumer relationship is all about fulfilling my needs. All right? So when there is a consumer relationship, there's a consumer and a vendor. Right? The vendor makes the product, and the consumer decides whether he or she will continue to buy the product. That's called consumerism. It's called a consumer relationship. I come in relationship with you and I will evaluate you on your product. If I like your product, then I will give myself to you and I will continue to walk with you and I will continue to be with you if I like what you're producing. That is what we call a consumer relationship. In other words, a consumer relationship says, you adjust to me, you're a slave to my feelings. A consumer relationship. Then there is a covenant relationship A covenant relationship is a relationship that's more important than your needs and feelings, okay? And and the perfect example of this is a child parent. Your child will not give you the love that you desire sometimes. Your child will become rebellious. Your child will say hurtful things to you. Your child will even pull your heart out at times, hurt you. But you're in a covenant relationship with them. It's not necessarily about your needs. It's not about how you feel because you're in a covenant with them, and so therefore you adjust your feelings and your wants to keep the relationship. It's called a covenant relationship. So if it was a consumer relationship, you would get rid of the child, because the child doesn't love you enough. The child doesn't respect you enough. The child doesn't say thank you enough, so it's not producing, so therefore you get rid of it. That's a consumer mindset. A covenant mindset says I'm in this thing because I made a promise and I love you in spite of how I feel. You may may treat me bad. You may say things to me. You may respond to me negatively. You may do things to me that hurt me. But I value the relationship so much, I revalue the relationship above my needs and feelings. That is a covenant relationship. And in America, it's all about consuming. Consuming. Having a one night stand, let's have sex together. You produce for me. And if you perform long enough, and if you perform the right way, I'll keep you and we'll go on another date. It's consumerism. We consume, it's marketing. When you live with someone and you're not married, each individual feels like they're marketing. They never feel like they're good enough for the person. Am I good enough for him? Am I good enough to be his wife? Am I good enough to be her, her husband? Am I good enough? You're always in this consumer relationship trying to figure out whether you're good enough because you're always producing. And if you don't produce the right way, and if you don't do something the right way, they can walk out. But a covenant relationship says, I am in this thing because I made a promise and despite how I feel in spite of my feelings and my needs, I'm in this thing because I made a promise and I will adjust how I feel to you. Because I value the relationship above my own feelings. You see, let me make sure you understand something. Love is not about a feeling. Love is a commitment. Feelings are second. I'm not saying that you can't be romantic and have romantic feelings. That will happen. But sometimes that will fade away. And love has to be a commitment. A commitment to invest yourself into another person and meet their needs, whether you feel like your needs are being met or not. Now, what's, this is the trouble. When somebody gets married and somebody is a covenant person and somebody is a consumer person, that's when it's trouble. The one person that's a consumer... They're all concerned about, you better beat my needs. You better do this. I don't feel secure. You said this to me. You did this to me. And it's all about consumer. And if you don't do this right, I'm not going to talk to you. I shut down. Consumer. A covenant relationship says, listen, I value you so much. In spite of what I did to you, in spite of what I said to you, I'm willing to lay down my pride and say I'm sorry. Because it's not about who's right. It's about righteousness. And I value the relationship so much, I'm willing to let down my pride and stay in covenant with you because I made a promise to you and it's not about how I feel and it's not about you meeting my needs all the time. I will adjust to you because I value the relationship so much. You see how that's a paradox in, in America? Number two, the mission of marriage. What what does marriage accomplish? Now, most of this material I got from Timothy Keller. Timothy Keller is one of my favorite authors and preachers. and He did a whole series on marriage, and I couldn't use all of it. Some of it is not applicable to us. But I immersed myself in learning this because I thought it was interesting. The mission of marriage is not about fun and having a comfortable life, although that's good. But the mission of marriage is this, it's deep friendship. The mission of marriage. What does marriage accomplish? It accomplishes deep character change through deep friendship. In other words, God will mold you and make you. He will use marriage as a sanctifying element to mold you and make you into the person that you need to be to represent Jesus. So the question you got to ask yourself, am I looking like Jesus in my marriage? Or am I still nasty? Do I still have the same attitude? Do I st- am I still passive-aggressive? Do I still get my feelings hurt so easily? Am I always walking on eggshells? When does it cross from being consumer to being a covenant? That I value the relationship so much that my needs is not as important as your needs. Your needs is important. You see... A covenant relationship is not only found in marriage, but do you know a covenant relationship can be platonic. It can be two persons of the same sex. They can come into covenant brotherhood or sisterhood. That's found in other countries more prominent than in America. You have a covenant relationship with a child. A child and a parent. The Bible says that David and Jonathan had a covenant relationship. Or Paul and Timothy had a covenant relationship. Elijah, Elisha, had a covenant relationship. What is a covenant relationship? A promise, a commitment that the relationship is greater than my own feelings and my own needs. But in context of marriage, it is a sanctifying element. You see, you've got to fall in love with someone not of who they are, but you've got to fall in love with someone because you are excited of what that person is becoming. Can you see yourself with that person? Are you excited in the direction that that person's going? And that is the person that you need to choose. What is the secret of marriage? The secret of marriage is able to love your partner during seasons in which you receive little or no love back. That's the secret of marriage. Because it's a covenant. And there'll be times that you won't feel loved. There'll be times that you won't feel affirmed. There'll be times that your partner is sick. There'll be times that your partner has his own issues or her issues. There'll be times that your partner can't give the love back. And your love, listen to me, your love, in order for you to make it, you've got to find your love from a different source. And if your love is found in Christ and rooted in Christ, then you can love your partner through those hard times. And let me tell you something. Let me say this. And this is what happens. Let me say this loud and clear. This goes for me. This goes for any relationship, not just marriage. If your whole life revolves around getting love from one person, then, ladies and gentlemen, you are solely disappointed and your life will be miserable because one person cannot fulfill all your needs. One person is not your Savior. One person is not your God. One person can't fulfill every need that you have in your life. There comes a time that when that person can't give you what you desire, you've got to have a strong enough relationship that your relationship is so rooted in Jesus that you're able to love people when they don't love you back. Can I hear an amen? Now isn't it amazing that you love your children that way? You love your child so much that even when that child doesn't love you or appears to love you or say things to hurt you because we know children can do it or break your heart isn't it amazing that you'll still love them? You'll still pay their cell phone bill You'll still pay their car bill, their insurance bill, cook them food, call them, text them. You'll do whatever you got to do because the relationship is more important than how I feel. Then why don't we treat our marriage that way? A sign of an unhealthy marriage is when you find love in different sources than your spouse. When you crave love from somewhere else. The secret of marriage is able to love your partner during seasons in which you receive little or no love back. You see? If you're going to make it, you've got to ask yourself this question. Number one, do I have the ability to hear criticism without being crushed? Number two, do I have the ability to give criticism without crushing And number three, do I have the ability to forgive people without holding a grudge? That works in every relationship, every church, no matter where you're at in life, those three things will save you. Lastly, why is premarital sex and cohabitation, why is it sinful, not God's plan? Because the Bible says in Matthew 5, verse 27, Matthew chapter 5, verse number 27, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. The Bible says in verse number 28, But I say unto you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. Verse number 29 states, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you to have one member of your body perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Verse number 30, he says this, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's more profitable for you for one of your members to perish and for your whole body to be cast in hell. What is he saying here? He's saying that fornication, adultery, sexual sin happens when your mind and your heart is at other places. You've got to keep your mind and heart on the things of God. The biblical sex ethic is this. No sex outside of a covenant. Why? Because a covenant relationship brings freedom. Sex is a covenant good. It's a covenant good. It's not a consumer good. When you make yourself physically naked in marriage, it is a sign of what you have done with your whole life. I have become vulnerable with my emotions. I have stripped naked my emotions. I have stri- stripped naked my spirit man. I have already done it emotionally. I have already done it sociologically and now I'm doing it physically. And when you participate in premarital sex, you are participating in a covenant benefit that was never designed for a consumer benefit. Sex is kind of like a sacrament. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is this a sacrament is an external visible sign of an invisible work. When we take bread and wine and eat it at communion it's a visible sign of something that's already happened inwardly. Sex is a visible sign that I have become vulnerable emotionally so therefore physically I become naked in front of you. I participate in the act of sex because it is an external sign of what has already happened emotionally. I have already given my life to you. I have already shared my emotions with you. I have already shared my deepest thoughts with you. I have already come in contact with you. And the world wants to tell you. That just have sex because it feels good. But God says I have created sex as a covenant good. Because it represents what you have already done. Emotionally with somebody. And people are jumping in a bed. And per- participating in sexual acts that they have not given their life to. You're asking somebody to do with their body that they haven't done with their life. And marriage is not just sex. Marriage is the giving of my life to you. And the sacrament of marriage is the sexual act. I As a result of that, there is an external sign of what's already happened spiritually between us and what's already happened emotionally between us. And so therefore, it's acted out in the physical act. Just like water baptism. It's an external sign of what's already happened on the inside. Bread and juice of communion. It's an external sign of what's already happened on the inside. The sexual act is representing what's already happened spiritually between us, what's already happened emotionally between us. People nowadays are performing sexual acts with people that they have no life connection with, no compatibility with, and all it is is a marketing tool. I'm in this relationship, as long as it feels good, as long as you do what I want, God says that's not how it's to do. The sex sex is a covenant renewal ceremony in marriage. It is the glue that keeps the covenant sacrament, the sacrament of marriage, renewed year after year. And so God's plan is that if you're living in sin, and you're living with somebody, or you're cohabitating with them, or involved in premarital sex, stop it. It's sinful. And God says that those who do such things shall inherit eternal damnation. Because those who commit sexual acts, the Bible says, you are sinning against the body, and the body belongs to God. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, verse 4, Marriage is honorable among all, the bed is undefiled, but fornicators God will judge. I've already dealt with you with the word fornication. Last week, you already know what it means. That The Bible says God will judge fornicators, those who participate in sexual acts outside of the covenant of marriage of one man and one woman. God said, I will judge. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, the Bible says, For this you know, that no fornicator and no unclean person, no covetous man who is an adulterer has an, will inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 3, Paul the Apostle was very clear again. You can't get much clearer than this. For this you know that no fornicator, or 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. Next scripture, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Amen. Well, let me read this one. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. Meanwhile, praying also that God would open to us a door for a word. I don't think that's right. All right. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. We'll let them find it. Go to the next scripture. Amen. Go to the next scripture. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 5. He says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, and what church? Uncleanliness, passion, evil desires, which is adultery. Again, he says, these things will not inherit the kingdom of God of God. Jude chapter 1 verse 7. Jude chapter 1 verse 7. Jude chapter 1 verse 7. But you, beloved, remember the words which was spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number 7, not 17. Judge Jude chapter 1 verse 7. Amen. Let them read, get that scripture. Jude chapter 1 verse 7. As in Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, what happened in similar manner Having given themselves over to sexual immorality, they've gone after strange flesh, and they set for us an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. See, ladies and gentlemen, you cannot get a, you can't get around God's plan for marriage, God's plan for relationship. This is God's plan. This is God's idea. This is God, this is how God has set it, it up to be. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what about it? If you're here today and you say, well, pastor, I feel like I'm falling through the cracks. I feel like my marriage is not where it needs to be or I'm in a relationship I know I shouldn't be in. I said throughout the whole sermon, God still loves you. God still has a plan for you. God still wants to use you. But he's calling you to repentance. He's calling you to make things right. He's calling you to walk in purity of heart and soul. He's calling you to come to a place in your life where you say, my relationship with God is so much more important than my passions and my desires. And the scripture tells us that no matter what temptation that you have, He will give you the strength enough to bear it. Can I hear an amen?